Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. You may have seen recently in the news discussion about this possible early Israelite curse inscription found on a lead tablet from Mount Ebal. And we thought it'd be great to have a discussion about this, not just the finding itself, but about how we think through these findings as they're coming out into the kind of public sphere. So we've got a roundtable discussion on that. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. Uh, today we have our very first roundtable discussion. We're not all here. We do wish uh, Mary was joining us. Uh, uh, Mary Buck, our, our great co-host that we do uh, the Stain series with. Um, but I am joined uh, for the first time by uh, four, you know, we have four of us here, Kyle Keimer, Mark Jansen, hello. Hello. and Oliver Hersey. Uh, go ahead and say hello, hello to the audience, Hello, guys. it's good to see everybody. <laughs> um, and the, the goal for today's uh, episode is to talk about a, an exciting, potentially earth-shattering, potentially really important, potentially maybe eh, discovery um, that is that has been making the rounds in social media, uh, the news, um, and, and that of, is, of course, the so-called curse tablet from Mount Ebal. Uh, I like probably better to refer to it as just simply the the lead tablet from uh, the area of of Mount Ebal, which was announced, um, I think it was now two or three weeks ago, at the Lanier Theological Library in Houston um, by Scott Stripling of Associates of Biblical Research in the Bible Seminary. And um, what we'd like to do today is to essentially address some of that, um, but what that discovery means um, potentially, and what it uh, what we can't really say about it yet because of the lack of of, of a publication, uh, which is what we're what, essentially what we're what we're waiting on. But um, there's a ton of different you know people out there talking about this uh, lead tablet. You can see it in any any news report. You can find even archaeologists making YouTube videos on it. Uh, long Facebook uh, posts and forums. Uh, it's a it, it, all that to say. It's it's a it's a very significant find. Um, but I I think that most people, unless you've been tapped into the archaeology of Israel for the last forty years, um, or at least been aware of what's happened in the last forty years in places like Ephraim and Manasseh and the, the West Bank you might not understand all of the implications of what this find might mean. And so that's what we're trying to do today. We're not really assessing the value of this potential discovery. We will talk about what it actually uh, says, according to the principal investigators, which are Scott Stripling, 
Gershon uh, Galil and Peter van der Veen, um, who are uh, scholars at various institutions. Gershon Galil is at Haifa University. Peter van der Veen is a European scholar. I forget, St. Johannes, I think, is the name of his, of his school. And as I said, Scott Stripling is from the Bible Seminary in Houston. Um, and there are other scholars involved with this as well, um, not so much on the tech side, but in terms of scanning the lead tablet and also uh, figuring out where the uh, lead was from. We'll talk maybe about that in a minute. What I'd like to do is to kick this off by talking about the background of the actual site, um, which is uh, actually a site that I know somewhat well because it has the same site. It has the same name as the site that I excavate. The site that I excavated is a site called Tel Bornat. The name of this one is Kirbit Bornat. So it means like the the Kirbit of the hat, um, which doesn't tell us much about it, whether it's an altar or, or not. Um, but nevertheless, it has that has that name. And it was excavated by Adam Zertal, um, an archaeologist of the University of Haifa in the late 70s and early 80s, and uh, was quite controversial since its initial discovery based upon uh, Adam Zertal's um, interpretation. So I'm going to pass it over to Kyle, and we'll all kind of fill in here with some of this background material. Yeah, great. Thanks, Chris. What a, a good introduction. And um, yeah, let me just paint the picture of the actual site and some of the remains that Zertal excavated, because it's not a, a typical tell site. It's this one-off, really unique site. And it was unique when they discovered it in the survey of Manasseh, and it's still unique today. Um, so how do we interpret this site? It's, it's a big question. Well, what do we have there? Well, there's three different strata, kind of stratum 1A, 1B, and 2, all of them dated by Zertal to the end of the Late Bronze Age, early, early Iron Age 1. So we're looking at kind of 13th, maybe into the, the 12th centuries BCE. And that's kind of a tight sequence. You have what seems to be maybe an Israelite four-room house. Well, we just call it a four-room house. We, don't, we won't label it Israelite yet. Um, that goes with the earliest structure. And along with that, you have this favisa and a favisa is a um like a cultic dump so when you have cultic objects that go out of use you don't just throw them away because they've been ritualized and so you de-ritualize them in a sacred manner and you dump them into a kind of collective pit and this is called a, fa a favisa in in archaeological parlance and we seem to have one of these uh, associated with this this four-room house and maybe a few other walls and structures going with this favisa. The next um, strata that goes with it then is this larger structure built directly over top of it that Zertal says, actually, this is, this is an altar. And it's a rectangular structure at its core, hollow, and then you have kind of additional platforms built around it and a ramp that leads from the, the ground level up to the top of this um, the structure. Outside of that, you've got a what we could call a temenos wall, some sort of wall that demarcates the broader space of this this installation from the rest of the mountain. And we may even have um, some monumental staircase that goes with this ladder structure. Now, the question, of course, is what what is this thing? And Zertal, if you go back and read his publications, was wasn't initially saying that this was Joshua's altar mentioned in the Book of Joshua but that it is, it is a cultic structure. And the reason why is because they found unique types of vessels associated with the structure. They found lots of burned material, ash, and animal bones. 
And again, the confluence of all the, the evidence led him to suggest that this is a, a ritual site. Some sort of cultic activity is taking place here. And then he kind of added on the layer of the biblical text and, and said, well, we're located on Mount Ebal. The text tells us Joshua builds an altar on Mount Ebal. Let's add one and one together and see what we have. Now, of course, this was was variously received at the time, and um, some people, you know, were quite vehemently opposed to this and said, "There's no possible way it could be this." And it, uh, they proposed it could be a military tower, or part of a village, or part of a regular house, or anything but a cultic uh, location or cultic site. Since time has gone on, though, Zertal has, uh, you know, has passed away. In the meantime. Um, I would say, by and large, many scholars now accept that this is a cultic site. But again, ascribing it to Joshua and to the early Israelites is still the the big question, the big the big debate as far as the interpretation goes. And there's a, a nice study from uh, 2012 by Ralph Hawkins who kind of reevaluates the archaeology and the the context of the Mount Ebal structure and puts it within the discussion of you know, previous alternate interpretations that it's a tower or it's a village or it's this or that and basically argues that the strongest argument that we have is actually that it is a cultic site it is an altar and actually when you look at the the rules and stipulations for altars both in the biblical text and in post-biblical literature and when you look at extra uh, other archaeological parallels we have an altar of some sort and the fact that it's hollow which was one of the sticking points back in the day actually uh, isn't really a problem. It fits with what we see described in the text, and we see uh, other examples where you have a hollow altar because this is where the ash collects and falls and the small bone pieces. Um, so this is the the context of this site, the kind of the nature of it, and I'll, I'll stop there unless we want to go. Yeah, um, and guys, uh, everybody, just feel free to jump in. This is going to be a free-for-all. Um, but I'll, I'll just add a few things um, because this is an area that, uh, I have studied, you know, in, in recent, in recent, um, you know, the last years or so, um, in thinking about the, the timing of the conquest, the settlement itself, and we'll address some of these things a bit later in terms of, you know, when does Israel, you know, leave Egypt? When do they come into the land? And for, uh, those of you who have been listening in the past and those of you who haven't, we have several episodes that talk about this with, uh, Mark Jansen and we were joined by, um, I think all five of the, the panelists that wrote in um, his great book on the five views of the Exodus. So this is a related question. But it, from my perspective, when we talk about this, um, this altar um, or this cultic structure, it, there is a somewhat of a question um, if it I, I agree with you that it's like it's definitely a cultic structure. It's definitely it's seems to be an altar. But the question is, is it the altar? <laughs> is it the altar that's mentioned in Joshua chapter 8? Um, and in terms of the geography of Joshua chapter 8 and, and Deuteronomy chapter 11, which mentions the building of these, um, the building of this altar after the reading of the blessings and the cursings, it does seem to put that altar closer to uh, what we call the Nahal Shechem, uh, this wadi that separates Mount Ebal from Mount Gerizim, um, with with Shechem below, and according to the text, it seems that the ark in the tabernacle were set up there 
uh, when the blessings and the cursings were read, according to Joshua 8. And if you read that in connection with, uh, with Deuteronomy. And so it actually, uh, yes, it's on Mount Ebal, but it's quite a ways to the north uh, from where the, um, you know, the dramatic scene of the blessings and the cursings were read. I don't think that's an insurmountable problem, though, uh, for uh, this to be connected with an altar. And it's certainly not an insurmountable problem for it to be connected with just a religious structure slash altar that is connected with early Israel. Um, so we'll leave that on the side. Uh, because Chris, let, me, this- let me jump and add one more thing to that, because that's a really good point that you make. And this is one of the other the elements of why people didn't agree with Zertal's um, interpretation, or some people didn't, because it's not located on the top of Mount Ebal. It's not on the high point where you might expect an altar or cultic site to be located. It's actually located kind of on the northeastern slopes of of the the mountain itself and so you're right it is kind of removed from the overview of looking down over shechem and the nahal shechem you can't actually even see it um, from the location yeah definitely and i mean that's i think that's a just a historical geographical issue but as i've as i've said to others when i ask this question I'm like well it's there what can we do with it i mean it's 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 not where we would hope that uh it would be in terms of the kind of the southern face of mount ebal but it's it's it is in this position, and so yeah, if we and it if is we the were, only Iron One site on the mountain that Zertal surveyed or found, yes, so yes, and just because we can't say, oh, this is definitely the one Joshua built, doesn't mean it's not still cultic. Exactly, it's almost like I think for some people the Joshua argument, if I can just generically label it that, led to this sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater on the idea that it was cultic at all, but. I mean, this idea that it's like defensive, like it's not even large enough to accomplish anything there. Like, I don't know. I've never bought any of the other arguments, but we can't really definitively prove it's Joshua. But that's how archaeology often is. We get like really good context. We can get like a picture of how these things might have been. But it's pretty rare to be like, oh, see, it's this exact one is the exact same thing in this biblical text here. So I think we could we should be realistic there, too. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, just to put that in perspective, there aren't so many structures that you can say this building is related to the something mentioned in the Bible. There's exactly one that we can everyone agree, and that's the Tel Dan uh, high place. Uh, If you can read back in Ami Mazar's textbook, the only building known from the Old Testament is this one. Uh, I'd like to think that we also have identified the Milo, uh, but we haven't uh, got enough support for that just yet. Uh, in Jerusalem, but it, the stakes for this are are are, are high in terms of this a type of identification. Um, but I also think that this this geographic context is important, um, and it's not something that a lot of people are going to think about, given that you're going to have kind of talking heads telling you about it in the news. But it is slightly, um, you know, not in the the position where we would think it would be. Now, the the other thing I wanted to mention is the context of it in the larger settlement wave that we do have in uh, particularly uh, Manasseh, which would be the northernmost part of the West Bank, and to a lesser extent, Ephraim and Judah, um, that is related to what we call the, the Iron One um, settlement wave here. What, what happens in, in the highlands, and this is according to Israel Finkelstein's first work that was done there back in the 70s and 80s, and his a publication on this very point in excavating places like Shiloh and, and others, uh, was that we have the establishment of um, dozens of new sites in places where they hadn't been settled before in the preceding Late Bronze Age. 
Um, and the the late Bronze Age sites, you know, late Bronze Age is from 1500 or so to, to 1200 or so. Um, they many of some of these were abandoned. Uh, the big sites that were were there, uh, actually, they were even abandoned in the late Bronze Age. Um, Middle Bronze Age is a, is a peak moment, as is the Iron One in uh, in the Hill Country. And so, when we think of this, um, when we think of this site, um, Ebal cultic site, let's call it. It certainly seems to be chronologically connected and probably ethnically connected. And we say that, you know, without with a little bit of hesitation to what we also see in throughout the region. And if we if we cast a wider net, we could add in the the bull site altar or the bull site cultic site, which is to the north of this close to the area of Tel Dotan. We could talk about um, uh, the Shiloh excavation, or the, you know, the material at Shiloh, which is built upon the ruins of the Bronze Age city, and many, many other sites um, in and around um, the areas of Manasseh. And so, it's it's a cultic site uh, that is uh, connected with this, and um, it's to the scholars such as Israel Finkelstein, um, as well as Adam Zertal, and the ongoing efforts of. Uh, Shai Bar at Haifa University, uh, that we continue to learn more and more about um, this settlement, uh, the settlement way, which is which is very very important. Now, um, the pottery and the material itself uh, that is found at these sites um, is associated, uh, at least by archaeologists, with the Iron One, uh, which um, is one of the main reasons why those of us who consider there to be some historical um, Background and connection to the Exodus and the Conquest would date the that event to the to the 13th century because the settlement wave you see in uh, the Highlands comes in only the very late 13th the, the late 13th century and into the uh, 12th century BC, um, which I, to me and we talked about this before fits well with. Texas texts like Joshua 17, where it talks about the Manassites not able to drive out the people of the plain. And so they carve out for themselves um, a place in, in the forests. Uh, that's my paraphrase uh, of, 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 of the hill country of Ephraim. And so um, all of that is the, the context of this cultic site. Perhaps it was one of the central cultic religious sites for these peoples, which I would be feel very comfortable associating with uh Early Israel as they're as they're moving in uh, into the highlands, um, whether or not it's the the altar itself, and so um, I think that's probably well. I, I'll say one other thing. Uh, sorry, one other thing. Um, in terms of interpretation, um, it's very interesting. You met, we mentioned and talked about Zertal a little bit. Uh, I think that there's a good lesson here that. Um, as time goes on, you know, the, the, the chaff gets winnowed. Um, and what has come out is that even in among uh, pretty critical scholars, they consider this to be a religious site. Um, and a, a kind of a tangential issue to this is the so-called uh, foot enclosures, uh, which have been, and, and, and I, for one, don't really like this interpretation where they talk about how there are these foot-shaped structures which are early Israelite cultic centers because they look like a foot from above. And this is somehow connected with the Gilgal. And I won't belabor the point on how Zertal and others have made this suggestion. 
I do agree, though, that they are early Israelite, and I do agree that perhaps they're, they're cultic. But the exact historical geographical identification of them as Gilgals, um, the, the, I disagree with because it's a whole other kind of side identification question. And so my point is, when we're approaching these questions about early Israel and the highlands, we're often um, sharing a lot of the same perspective in the way we interpret the information. But here and there, there'll be some significant uh, disagreements. And so I'd like to now turn it over if, if anybody else has anything to add about the background of the site, the context of, um, you know, early Israel in this area before we talk about the, uh, the context of the, of the find itself. Any comments? Okay. The only thing I'll add, Chris, is, is – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Oliver. I was just saying you did a great job. I, I – you know, I think the the context is really important, understanding the background of where this find is and the biblical context of Mount Ebal and understanding uh, its role, will, I think, influences a little bit of how we might read the text or understand the text. But again, we'll, we'll talk about the text in a minute. So I, I think you did a great job, Chris. Thanks. Thanks. Kyle, did you have something to add? I also thought you did a great job. Uh, I figured, I figured <laughs> that's what you wanted to add. I said I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate you. I, I kind of um, thought it was terrible. No, <laughs> Mark. Yeah, and, and with that, that's a good. That's a good point. Why no, don't? I why don't did I, have, I did have a real point though. Oh, okay. okay. Aside from how great okay. you are. Um, oh. No, it's just this. This. Um, yeah, the idea that you have these centralized cultic kind of locations, and you mentioned this one, uh, the bowl site. Shilo, the, this is the landscape in the Iron One, and it, it looks vastly different as we move into later periods. And so there's a kind of changing of the cultic landscape, even from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, and then from the Iron Age, early Iron Age into the later Iron Age. And so this is a, an important thing to, as part of the context to, to keep in mind. And so we're, we really are um, in, in a time period where it, it fits a maybe less urban type of population uh, and allows for a greater cohesion amongst nomadic groups in the region. So that's just. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for that, I'd also point our listeners back to a great episode we had uh, maybe a few months ago with Erez Ben Yosef thinking about nomads in the South, you know, the, the region of the Arava and the Negev. Uh, but he also made the point that this is not just something that exists in places that are dry. Um, we have abundant references to nomadic groups um, in the area that we're talking about now. Um, in fact, if we think about First Kings chapter uh, chapter twelve, where we have the division of the kingdom at this mountain, Ebal and Gerizim, with Shechem, uh, the thing they say after they say, "We don't want you, David's son anymore. No more, no more Shlomo, no more Rehoboam to your tents, O Israel." And of course, that is a kind of a, a wider statement that we find all in, in the Bible, you know, that we need to go back and, and not be part of this kingdom anymore. But it probably is literal as well that uh, many of the people, even in the time of the monarchy, uh, were not living in these urban uh, urban settlements. Um, okay, so I actually just like to read the text here to set the stage, and then we'll um, move into the the context of the discovery. So this is Deuteronomy chapter eleven. Uh, verses 29. I won't read the whole thing, uh, but it's through, through chapter 32 if you want to look it up. It says, when Yahweh your God has brought you into the land that you're entering to occupy, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. As you know, they are beyond the Jordan, some distance to the west in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arava opposite Gilgal beside the Oak of Moreh. 
Um, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 29. And then we have the fulfillment of this in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 32. This is after uh, the conquest of Ai, um, and it's kind of related to, there's actually kind of an interesting detail here. Um, and in different versions of the book of Joshua, this um, kind of vignette of these few verses appears in different places. Um, in the Septuagint, in the Masoretic text, it's the same, but um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it actually occurs right after they cross the Jordan, that they go to Ebal and Gerizim and reenact this. And uh, just as another aside to this, if you look at the Medaba map, um, there are two different traditions about where Ebal and, and uh, Gerizim are, one close to Jericho and another one where we now know uh, they, they, they are located. Uh, so it's just an interesting kind of uh, background detail. But this is what it says in Joshua. At that time, Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings and so on, and he wrote on the stones a copy of the law. Okay, so that's what the text says. We talked about the context of, um, you know, where this is in relationship to uh, where we thought the blessings and cursings might be. Now let's talk about um, uh, why, how come we have a tablet? (laughs) How is it that we have this this artifact? Um, And the answer is, um, well, the site was essentially left uh, as it was um, since Zertal's excavations, which were, you know, some 35, 40 years ago. We'll go with 40. You know, that's a nice biblical number. Um, and in that time, uh, as we've said, there's been shifts in the archaeological understanding of what's happening in the highlands, about the site and its interpretation. But there's also been shifts in terms of archaeological methodology. And one of the big shifts that's occurred is the use of wet sifting um, more broadly in the archaeological, um, you know, in, in archaeological excavations. Now, very, um, you know, wet sifting um, really isn't all that complicated. What it essentially means is you take soil that you've excavated, you catalog it, make sure you're you're keeping the the context, um, and you put it through a process of sieves with water so that it separates the soil from larger debris. Now, it's a similar process to what you would find with dry uh, sifting or sieving, uh, which is much uh, uh, worse for those of you who like their nostrils not to be filled with mud um, <laughs> or feet covered in dirt. Uh, but it's the, same, it's the same idea, except you have better results from, from wet sifting. So it's something that if we all had our druthers, we would love to be able to do because you inevitably find all the stuff you miss in uh, an excavation. And it has the potential to find uh, small bones, fish bones, um, uh, scarabs, boule, um, and uh, which you know these the seal impressions, which is actually part of the, the um, reason why Jerusalem excavations in the city of David continue to produce more and more of these small finds, because literally everything that is excavated in the city of David and its environs is sent to um, the Temple Mount Sifting Project, uh, and that's a whole other uh, kind of discussion. Uh, but, but what they've done is, is they've sifted the material that was excavated underneath um, the area of Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Dome of the Rock for the last 15 or 20 years. But because it's there, right next to the city of David, 
the soil is carried in these large bags, but uh, is cataloged and then sifted. And so they know everything that um, they've excavated, not only in terms of the stuff they see with the naked eye, but also the material that they can't see. Um, and so that's why we have, you know, these nice boule, um, for instance, that uh, continue to appear in, uh, in publications from Jerusalem. There, and there's usually three or four of these every year. Some of these are people mentioned in the Bible. Um, some of, we've even had one that was recently a very prominent woman uh, in the last days of the Judaic monarchy. And so the wet sifting is, is something that everyone, if they could, uh, you know, financially speaking, uh, as well as if you have electricity at your site and, of course, water at your site, uh, we have bulls at Tel Borna, so uh, not, that doesn't really help us. And we have no electricity or water, so we, we can't really do this. Um, but if you can do it, it's something that really uh, can be quite useful. And so to uh, Scott Stripling's credit and you know the, the excavation Shiloh, they have all access to this, and they've used that at Shiloh um, ever since the beginning of the project. And they've even sifted some of the past um, excavation dumps uh, to reveal more and more what's there. Now, the problem with with, with uh, sifting a dump of a multi-period site is that if you dump all of the um, excavated material from a site that has multiple periods, it really won't tell you much other than, oh, this is a nice find because it is mixed Right. So if you're excavating a site that's occupied from the Middle Bronze Age through the, um, you know, through the Persian period or through the you know, modern times, you're going to find a whole host of, of different things uh, in the dump of, of past excavations. But that's what makes this uh, project actually quite interesting, because as Kyle uh, indicated, the site was only occupied for a fairly short period of time. Now, when exactly it was occupied is debated, and we'll get into that in a minute, but it's probably from like the late 13th century until um, the 12th or 11th century. Like, for instance, Israel Finkelstein says the whole thing's 11th century. That's really problematic because the site has a scarab from Ramses II. Um, so Ramses II is you know, a, couple, a couple hundred years before that. Um, and, you know, we talk about these you know terms and moving centuries here and there. I mean, that's a long time, you know, that go from the Beatles to George Washington. Um, that's a, it's a significant period of time to, to talk about. And so, but because the, the fines relate to a, a fairly tight window, um, if this lead tablet dates to the time frame um, of the altar, which would, would make sense, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's really useful to do a wet sift on it. Um, because there's not, you know, a, a full tell that would have, you know, early bronze through the Ottoman period. Um, and we can, we can, you know, with fair amount of certainty that it is from the time period of the use of the altar. At least that's the claim that is being made by uh, Scott Stripling and Gershon Galil and, uh, and, and Peter Vanderveen. And as a kind of a corollary to that, um, the uh, scans for the object also seem, from, from their perspective, um, and they haven't released the scans yet, to support that to support that date. But I want people just to get a sense of wet sifting is a is a great tool um, that can be used and implemented in different ways. And at least from my perspective, uh, leaving aside the questions that are out there in places like Haaretz and, and others of, you know, the whole enterprise of excavating in the West Bank and what that actually means. If you're just thinking of this from an archaeological perspective, 
there's no reason why we wouldn't want to have this information about a site that is a one to two period site. Just as if, you know, a site like Kirbet Kiafa, if you were to go and wet sift everything at the site, you would find a lot of Iron 2A remains and a, a bit Hellenistic and a bit Byzantine, but you'd be able to differentiate that and you'd be looking for artifacts that you could connect directly with particular contexts. And so that's why this, um, this method, where they took the material and put it in bags and then took it to a wet sifting station uh, at a settlement in uh, the West Bank and, and wet sifted it, that's why from an archaeological perspective, it's a, it's a fairly good context, not as good as digging it directly from uh, uh, the ground and seeing it with the naked eye, uh, but not all that different than what you find the city of David doing all the time. Now, <laughs> again, politically, I'm not making any comment. I'm talking about the archaeological context. Um, and so would anybody have any additional comments to add or you know, pushback to my, to my statement? We, we, we can invite some controversy here among ourselves. Um, it's not definitely not pushback. Um, just just to add on, that's why it's important simply to understand the context of the site because there are going to be detractors, surely, who will say, "Well, it's from a pit, right?" And then that that will make some people think, "Oh, well, we we should eliminate this as is really of any value." And it wouldn't really rule out that it's a forgery that someone threw in there, I suppose. But you're right. If you were sifting, you know, I don't know, Megiddo, right? <laughs> this way, you'd be like, okay, this is a lot harder to pin down. Um, and so all things are not equal. And the context here is a narrow window where a, a sifting like this from a pit has less problems than a bigger site that covered more time periods. I think that's a great point. And that doesn't mean we should throw caution to the wind. But I do think that's, to me, as far as like reasons to be you know, to question the find, that's not that high on the list to me that it's from a pit. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that and just say that, you know, we are in this, this nice situation that it is a single period site and I'll be interested to see when they release a, a final publication, if they had any other material that they collected from the sifting that either you know, rim shirts or anything else that's datable that, that corroborates again, the date, which I, again, is it possible that somebody ran up to the top of the site and threw it down in a much later period? It's anything's pretty much possible. Is it likely? Well, probably not. Um, but if you have all the other material from this this dump that's been sifted that also seems to indicate an iron one date, well, then you're just adding a bit more uh, firmness to the claim that this this lead tablet is what is in fact from that time period. It seems that if it was a forgery, uh, it would be a pretty intricately designed forgery it it is not the type of forgery you would expect to to see or discover in a pit like that this thing has has been is rolled up it's you can't even unroll it right now. i can't look you have to image it so it just seems to me that it is a i want to if it's forged i'd love to meet the forger i mean that's a pretty amazing uh pretty amazing ability on 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 his or her part yeah the yeah, fact it, that you it, can't open it is really right. makes the forgery point pretty pretty hard to swallow. I mean, yeah. in, in terms of the way it looks, it has more in common with a kind of an aluminum gum wrapper than it does something like the Jehoiash <laughs> right. inscription, you know, which is an obvious forgery. It's not the kind of thing that a collector is going to say, whoa, I got to have this. I mean, it, it's a very small object. It was dirty, but it was, it was lead. And the fact that it's unexpected um, and the fact that we don't have uh, things from this period like it 
Um, well, I mean, that should be considered as part of the, our, our discussion, but that doesn't preclude that it's a legitimate find and that uh, what they're what they're suggesting isn't the, the, the you know, the, the evidence. And so maybe maybe we should transition here to talk about what their claims actually uh, actually were. Um, and uh, it's I think I even have the, the translation memorized. It's a very complicated translation. I don't, um, think, I'll I, say don't think, I don't think you know it. There's no way. <laughs> I, I might forget. I might forget a few of the curses, but it's something like curse, 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 curse. And I may, again, I may be missing a couple curses. Um, cursed by Yahweh God or the God Yahweh, I think is how it is. Uh, you shall surely die. Curse, 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 curse. And, and uh, they, they point to like a chiastic structure in the in this in this lead tablet. That's what's on the inside. As, uh, as and a then student they, of Northwest Semitics, you, you just got to eat that one up when you get assigned to it. You're like, yeah, I'll do that one. That sounds great. <laughs> just the same. Thing. Exactly. This is I can if do this that, is no legit. Problem. Yeah, this is the first, you know, the first, you know, extra biblical text you can translate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so, how, but how do they know what that says, right? That's that. I think that's the question. Um, how do they know that that's the translation? How do they know that we have those uh, those letters, which are they're they're calling? And this is where we get into some of the the nitty gritty of of the differences between uh, even the even the the researchers on it. Um, certainly there's going to be a difference between those who have done the scans, which are in, in, um, in the, in the Czech Republic and those who have done the lead analysis, um, from Hebrew university, uh, Nama Yaholom Mack did the, the, you know, the lead analysis. And then, but even among the epigraphers, uh, who wrote about it, there's a, you know, a different, um, take on it, uh, for, for instance, um, two of the researchers, Peter Vanderveen. And uh, Scott Stripling argue that it's LB2, that it's like around 1400 BC. Um, and of course, the, the point is from, for them is that this supports uh, an early date exodus and conquest, uh, which is something they, of course, already held. And there's difference of opinions on, even among them, but that's what they both kind of latched onto. Um, but for Gershon Galil, uh, who would follow the more traditional dating of the site in his discussions of this. And again, we're not talking about publications. We're talking about, um, you know, radio interviews, TV interviews, and that type of thing. He would connect it much more with something like 1200, which would be the date that Adam Zertal gave it. And so the question is, why are they giving those dates? Is it because of something paleo, uh, you know, from a, from a, from the letters themselves and in the, in the, in their shape and design that supports one or the other. And even if that's possible, given the state of the finds, or if it's a material they're bringing to the table from their own backgrounds. Now, the biggest, uh, and, and again, there's also the question of what it actually, um, what's actually on it and how, how did that come about that we know what's on it. And so, as I said, they, 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 they did, they did decided not to unroll it. And maybe one day it will actually be opened. Um, uh, there's been those suggesting that that's exactly what should be done, but they carried out a series of scans, which is how we get the translation that um, that I just indicated. Um, but the the big issue at this point um, is that we have a, a major announcement um, that has gone through all kinds of media like wildfire, and yet we don't have the publication. Now, I might, that might sound like a, uh, a criticism, and I think in, a, in maybe a perfect world, it would be a, uh, a criticism. I think we should have the publication first and then the announcement, but there has been all kinds of hints from 
the researchers involved that their work was about to be uh, taken over by uh, by other researchers. So there's a lot of um, cloak and dagger stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not all privy to. And I, w- I for one, would like to give the people involved um, the benefit of the doubt before we uh, cast dispersions over what it actually says or what it doesn't actually say. And um, and I, I really do hope it says Yahweh. And I really do hope it's uh, early. And I hope that it's something that's very interesting. But even if not, even if in the end, um, this is Hellenistic, and I'm not saying one way or the other because it hasn't been published, it's still a fascinating find. If we have the name Yahweh on a lead tablet that's uh, from the Samaritans or from the Hellenists, it's still a very significant find uh, that we would have no information on. It's not the same level of importance, but that still is a is a significant find. And so we await the uh, you know the final publication here, and we'll see um, once it's uh, once it's published. Inevitably, uh, we'll certainly do another uh, one of these roundtables, and hopefully, we'll have even some of the researchers involved um, going back and forth on this. But that's that's essentially the main components of, of what we know of what was said, what was announced. Um, and in terms of the, uh, the scans, what the claim was made by, especially Gershon Galil and Peter Vanderveen about what, what it actually says. Um, and, and, and so in any case, I'll pass it over to anybody else who has additional comments. Well, and Chris, we, we don't even have an, we don't even have an image of, I mean, there's yeah. no publication. There's not even, there hasn't even been released images of, what we could see or, or are able to see. I mean, that's, is that correct? I, I have, yeah, I've, they, they, they released that one scan that, yeah. that they, that they say is Yahweh. And but I don't think um, anyone can really see anything from it. Right. Like the reaction has been, yeah, it's, it's like a drawing of the scan. And it's, yeah. mm-hmm. I personally don't have a problem with the whole press release at the linear theological library, as long as the scientific academic journal article comes out within a reasonable time frame from that like say maybe into the summer or something would be reasonable or at the very least get the scans out somehow to everyone if you're still finishing the article because i think when we talk about it being exciting that's obviously you know yod hey vav on the inscription that escalates the political discussion it escalates the polemic the minimalist maximalist if you still think those terms apply to certain people that whole debate We'll probably circle back around to, you know, and and so there's plenty to be excited about. But I think of the caution sort of in like three layers or frames, if that helps the listeners, like the archaeological part, which we've already done and like talked about how that's really not as big of a deal as it may sound at first glance. And then there's the epigraphic part where we desperately need the image, right, the high def or good drawings or both. And that might help us with the date if there's anything going on with the paleography. I'm not enough of an expert in the Canaanite and Hebrew early scripts to, to to know, but there will be people discussing it for sure. And then the last layer of caution is, okay, now how do you interpret it? And that's really hard when we haven't been able to do that second one really as a scholarly community. I think we can pretty well establish the first caution on archaeology isn't a big deal, but those other two are sort of to be determined by the peer-reviewed article. Or the photos. Those are those are those are some great cautionary. You know, that's the thing I keep being drawn to as well, Mark. I keep thinking in my mind, it's exciting, right? This is we've already talked about. This is an exciting discovery, and 
anytime we find a written text in epigraphic Hebrew, that's exciting because we don't have a lot, especially from the time period we have in view here, which is the late bronze, uh, maybe early iron age. Uh, we don't have very many. We, I mean, we can count them um, on, on a couple sets of hands, how many we have. So that's really exciting as well. And then to have the divine name uh, is also exciting uh, for all the reasons you've stated, Mark. But again, I think for me, I, I want to see the analysis. I want, it's, it's hard to even think about a date when it's been found in a, in a pit. You know, it's not in C2, so that's also going to make it challenging to locate it on a date. And I'm hesitant, uh, and I guess I want to caution everybody, I want to be hesitant about putting dates uh, and attaching a date frame to a text too quickly uh, before perhaps we've taken some time to, to process it. It's exciting, and I think when we get excited about things, we can draw, draw conclusions. But I want to just make sure that we as a team and, and as, a, as a scholarly community, we think through it and we take time to analyze it. Uh, the, I'm, I'm really excited to see what the dating of the lead is, if that's even possible to determine. And at this early stage, I'm glad you brought up the dates. I think, Chris, you kind of alluded to this too. And, um, you know, I enjoyed working with Scott on, on the Five Views book, even if we have a different date for the Exodus. But at this early stage, okay, when the lead's not been analyzed, when the paleography hasn't really made the rounds amongst the the world-renowned epigraphers, you know, more than just a couple on the team, but like a half a dozen of them, you know. Uh, it, it probably tells us more about what that person's view of the Exodus is than it does a whole lot about the lead tablet. If one person's like, oh, it's definitely 1,200 or definitely 1,400, before that more scientific work has finished, I would just caution everyone to take that for now with a grain of salt. And maybe by September or October, whenever there's more out there, it can be a little bit more precise. But it's going to be really tough to narrow it down between that, you know, one or two centuries when it's from a pit. And and I'm I'm guilty, Mark, of that exact same thing. I, I think I can often have my preconceived my, my worldview, right? It's developing, it's being shaped. My understanding of the biblical text, of the narrative, of the archaeological background. We begin to have a growing body of work that shapes our convictions. And we always need to hold those convictions a little loosely because there could be a discovery, there could be new evidence, uh, new interpretations that perhaps might shape that a little bit. So I think we have to realize we approach the data as well with sometimes a little bit of a bent. Uh, and I think everybody realizes that, but it's it, we have to keep that in mind as we take caution. We have to remember that there's a subjectivity to the interpretation process that we are all bringing to the data uh, all the time. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I think one of the fun things that we get to do here with OnScript Biblical World is we're always more than willing to uh, have this discussion. And we're, we're trying in this roundtable that we've we set up is to try and frame this for you, listener, as well as ourselves. You know, what what's come before in terms of archaeological discovery, in terms of archaeological discussion, um, what does the biblical text actually say? What is the current state of the the matter where scholarship is now before this announcement was made? And try and get our pulse on um, what others are saying, and and also from like a, a teaching perspective. Um, I, I think one of the goals of this podcast, besides just discussing really cool stuff about the biblical world, uh, which is of course a lot of fun, 
um, is is trying to think well about new discoveries. Uh, there is a um, there's an impulse that exists in um, in the media that is probably a, a part and parcel of of the very um, you know polarizing age in which we live that uh, new biblical discoveries only do one of two things: they confirm every word is God breathed, or they confirm every word is false. Um, that there is either an apologetic bent at all times to prove the Bible, or there is a, uh, whatever the opposite of an apologetic bent is, to disprove the Bible. And I, I think that uh, as you as you faithful listeners have, have heard again and again, that's not our perspective in dealing with the Bible. We do think that there is a realia to the biblical world. It is not fantasy land as much as we often will refer to fantasy lands uh, on this podcast. There is a reality to it, um, but we need to, um, particularly when uh, it's announced and then brought into these different contexts, we, we, we're trying to create a, a resource for you to, to listen to us think through these things and have these discussion amongst ourselves and amongst our colleagues, but also uh, for yourself, how, how, to, how to actually think about this. And I think the, the proper um, response at this point, is to give the researchers the benefit of the doubt of what they said uh, about what they have, and this is their interpretation, um, and even that they were worried that they were going to be, um, you know, that, that someone's going to publish before they're able to, and um, and wait and see what the publication actually says, and let the let the stakes be that this could be as significant as the Merneptah Steely, or it can be something less than that. Uh, but regardless, it's uh, a very interesting find and a unique opportunity to have a discussion like the one we're having now. And I realize wait and see maybe doesn't sound like the most exciting conclusion here, but I think it is absolutely the valid one. And again, until the image is released and, and the drawings and the full scientific publication, I'm not comfortable jumping to any conclusions really about its significance, but it has the potential to be very exciting. And I think we can we can maintain that stance and still respect the scholars who have announced it and give them some time to to get the rest of the info to us. But I think it's wise to let it kind of play out at this point, too. Yeah, I would be of the same mind, too. It's kind of the wait and see. And sometimes that's just what we have to have to do, uh, because if, if we don't, if we don't have all the details, if we don't have the, the analysis that goes into it, how, on what are we actually basing our opinions? hearsay floating air i mean it, it, it doesn't really it's not how you build an argument and it's not how you have a discussion and so yeah you know some of the things that maybe they've said already maybe they're kind of pie in the sky type claims that have you know they blurted out in their excitement or perhaps there's been misquotes perhaps this is actually what they believe and what they've concluded based their analysis Again, for those that are not those of us that are not part of the actual analysis of this object, we we have to be a bit more restrained and just wait until we have everything laid before us. That's exactly right. We have to wait. We have to wait, and I think that's important. And we don't have the data in front of us like uh, the scholars in view do. And I think we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. They have the information in front of them. I do find it fascinating. You know, I've been thinking about the Bible and this this text. If it is the the, the word uh, for cursing in Hebrew, arur, and it is the form, and it happens ten times as they've posited, 
and uh, suggested. It's interesting that it's connected to the Mount Ebal uh, location in light of what we find in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, where the word Arur occurs 18 times in those two chapters at Mount Ebal. And that's a that's an intriguing connection that I'm excited and curious to see how it might be teased out and fleshed out and what that entails exactly uh, in terms of what, what they end up concluding. So Chris, sorry, I cut you off. Thanks for letting me go. I appreciate, I appreciate you not yelling at me in front of everybody. Oh, no, just, no good. Uh, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> just kidding. All, all the yelling yeah. is later. When we're all not the yelling is later. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's, that's all good. And, and I would just simply say, um, as we, as we wrap up here is we, is ASOR will be interesting this year. Uh, I'm sure that this will uh, come up particularly if it's, if it's published. Um, and you know, we're going to continue to have this discussion, keep it in the background. And as things become more clear, uh, we'd love to, in future episodes, have um, the, the researchers involved. Uh, and that's the thing I was going to say. I, f- I forgot. This is not, I, I want our, 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 our listeners to be aware. This is not like a claim that's out of, mar- you know, out of left field about something that changes our whole perspective about, let's, you know, like Jerusalem's temple being somehow in the city of David. This is not, we're not talking about researchers that I, I got to jump in here because somebody posted on Facebook on April Fool's and I had no idea it was April Fool's. They posted that, that, that scholars have agreed that the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley were mixed up. <laughs> and I live yeah, in Jerusalem. Right. I live in Jerusalem. Right. So I'm scratching my head in the morning. I'm like, what's going on? And I was like, where did this come? This came right out of left field, changes my entire perspective. And then I realized it was April Fool's. So I'm a slow, I'm a slow on the uptake. Yeah, you you gotta really check the date on some of those posts. There's a really yeah. famous one. Um, or not, I don't know how famous it is, that the Torah.com has one where they say Esther was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that'll be you know passed around on on uh, social media. But my, my point is, is saying, this is not like someone that's trying to sell you a book on uh, how, if we could just move the temple from the, you know, from the area of the temple Mount to the city of David, we can start the, you know, the building of the next temple to bring about the Eskenaz. This is not, you know, the Noah's Ark being found. I mean, this is nowhere near that. The guys involved are serious researchers. They have a serious background. Uh, their reputation is on the line. And uh, if anything, what they've done in announcing it has made the pressure become much more than to actually get it published. And we all know in this in this room, we don't like uh, publishers or uh, for colleagues breathing down our neck about you know writing projects that we agreed to and have long uh, you know put on the side. Um, so we we do wish them well, and we do wish them um, happy researching and writing. And we look forward to hearing what they have to say and what the reaction is. Um, and so if there's no other final comments. Go ahead. I just Mike. said I can't wait. I'm looking forward. Oh to yeah, it. me too. I can't. It'll I can't be, wait. It, it, it'll be it'll great. Be interesting. Have, it'll be great to have them on, uh, and I'd love to be able to engage their publication and, and think through it with them, learn from them. Yep, definitely. I would just ask them to not release the publication on April first. Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> I want it before then. It'll, it'll go over <laughs> my head if it's April first. Yeah. Yes. Thank goodness yes. we're past that, and we can go back to believing everything we see on the internet now. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and Scott, you know, just for whatever it's worth, Scott's I think pretty good about getting dig reports out for Shiloh and not, you know, sitting on his finds. 
So I feel like it's, I'm pretty confident that he's not going to make everybody wait forever to get a more scientific publication and access to the photos, just knowing him a little bit. But Yep. All indications are that this is something that we'll know more about in the not too distant future. And as, um, you know, as, as my good friend and colleague Itzik Shai always likes to say, it's waited in the dust for 3,000 years. What's a couple more months? Uh, so we were anxious to find out what, uh, what, what it says, but uh, we'll have to wait and, and see what their publications actually say. We'll come back with a, a, a future episode on that. But for now, thank you for listening to OnScript Biblical World. Keep digging. Is that the line, Kyle? Keep digging? Sounds good to me. Yeah, I think I, yeah, sure. It should be. It is now if it's not already. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, really. We'll see you later. (laughs) You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.